and it's part two of three. It's a Where the Road Takes Me special this evening as we look back at the story of British Airways Flight 009 on Thursday, June 24th, 1982. The Boeing 747 jumbo jet was on a flight from London Heathrow to Auckland in New Zealand when all four engines failed between Kuala Lumpur and Perth in Western Australia. Following that major problem, which is highly unlikely to happen on any plane, the problems in the cockpit just kept on mounting. At the end of part one, Captain Eric Moody told me that they were so busy in the cockpit attempting to restart the engines that making announcements to the passengers didn't cross their minds immediately. But eventually, an announcement was made by Captain Moody, but not to inform the passengers, which of course it did, but his main reason was to get the attention of the chief steward who was on the lower deck and whom he was unable to contact. His words were, Ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing a small problem, but we are doing our damnedest to rectify it. I hope that you aren't too distressed. The announcement was later described as a masterpiece of understatement, because unless the engines were restarted, this huge plane was heading for the ground, or the Indian Ocean. Survivors, if any, would be very few. It wasn't until very late on when the little light came on on the panel in front of me to tell me that the rubber jungle, the uh, oxygen masks, have fallen down because we had other problems and the, with a the leak and the fuselage and that sort of nonsense, that I remembered, in fact, that they were there. And I then thought, well, I want to tell the chief steward what's happening because the danger was, at the end, we may have had to put this into the sea to ditch it. So... He ought to have known that. And I tried to ring him on the telephone system on the airplane. That wasn't working. So I thought, well, what else can I do? And the only way I could communicate with him was through the passenger address. I hoped. I didn't know whether that was working because we had all sorts of things working that were supposed to work and, and vice versa. So I thought, well, I will make an announcement then. That will get it through to him. He'll know. But if I do that, I've got to talk to the passengers. So what do you do? You don't want to uh, you don't want to alarm the passengers. So I thought you've got to sound as though you're really laid back, very laconic. And it's a matter of uh, a fact thing that's happening. And that's when I made an announcement to get the attention of the chief steward. And I got the attention of the world's press. And I'm still getting questions about, you know, it's now won some award as being the, the best bit of understatement ever. Well, I didn't set out to do that, I tell you. Yeah, because I read somewhere, in fact, in a number of places where your statement to the whole cabin was regarded as a masterpiece of understatement. Absolutely. <laughs> but it wasn't meant to be, but I, I wanted to keep them calm. And still, the cabin crew had no idea whatsoever as to what caused the loss of all four engines on their plane. Without a cause, a solution, of course, is difficult to identify. Now, while dealing with the major problem of attempting to restart any or all of the four engines, a new problem arose. The cabin was now leaking vital oxygen. Without it, the flight crew would become unconscious or die. But normally this is rectified by donning oxygen masks. But there was a problem here as well, and this led to Captain Eric Moody making a vital decision which would lose him time and elevation, but in the end would prove worth it. I mean, let's be honest, if we'd had this happen 
during a simulator detail, I think we'd have gone to uh, the British Airline Pilots Association, these people are being unfair. But uh, what happened was we were into the descent and I think we were down around about 26,000 feet. So we were well done. We'd lost, uh, we started at 37. So we're just over 10,000 feet into the descent. And there's a little screen, little uh, instrument just by my knee that started to beat quite loudly, which told us that the cabin was climbing. We were losing air pressure inside the cabin. And I imagine, nobody's told me otherwise, we had a leak around a door seal or something. It was letting the pressurized air in the cabin out. And so the cabin had climbed up to 10,000 feet. And while we're up at 37,000 feet, it was 8,000 feet in the cabin. So we'd lost a couple of thousand feet in 10. Now, what this was doing, this was taking the air out. And eventually, you've got no air inside. You'd be the same as the air pressure outside. Now, the rules say that when the cabin gets to 10,000 feet, the flight crew must put on their oxygen masks. So we'd then have 100% oxygen coming into our masks, which would keep us alive. Downstairs in the cabin, you're allowed to go up to 14,000 feet before you have to put your oxygen masks on. So the cabin got to 10,000 feet and we said, uh, oxygen masks go on now. And I put mine on. Roger tried to put his on. Barry put his on. Barry and I made communication. We look across at Roger and he's ferreting around the floor because as he pulled his oxygen mask down, it had fallen to bits. And what that had done, that had taken the oxygen away from his mask and also the lead to his microphone. So there he was, he was trying to repair that and put it all back together. And he had to pick some bits up off the floor. And I had to decide whether to uh, let him struggle on or I said to Barry, Let's get down to 20,000 feet. We can all live there and uh, we can talk as a crew again. We'll be back as a crew. Because I thought it was very important to have the three of us working together rather than two and one. The nearest airport to them at this stage was Jakarta, approximately 20 minutes away. But there was a problem here as well. There was a mountain range in between, and they probably would not have the required elevation to clear it. Add to that, their mayday message to air traffic control was misunderstood and not given the required attention. But at last, a tiny piece of good luck in the form of a Singapore Airlines plane not far behind them. And we couldn't have got there unless we could have climbed up a bit because uh, we got down to 12,000 feet. They couldn't see us on the radar from Jakarta. They asked us to climb up to 15,000 feet, which is when St. Elmo started up again. And uh, When Roger Greaves made the Mayday call, he said that the four engines had ceased to operate, but that was yeah. misinterpreted as just no yeah. engine number four. Yes, what he said was, Mayday, Mayday, Fever 9, all four engines have failed, is what he said, which to you and I is quite clear. But I'm afraid it's a non-standard aviation phrase. If he'd said number four engine failed, they would have understood that. But all four engine failed, it's something that doesn't happen and there's no standard phraseology for it. And let's be honest, we are talking to people in Indonesia. Now, I travelled the world for God knows how many years, and my, my language skills are still abysmal. These poor people, although they, they claim to speak English, it's poor English, and most of it is standardised phrases, like 
Roger, you know, the number four engines failed, all sorts of things like that, clear to land, that sort of nonsense they understand. But when you start to go off off piece, as it were, with your language, they have problems. And they had problems that night. And it took a Singapore Airlines that was about half an hour behind us on the same route to get through to them. We had no engines going. Obviously, you spent your time trying to restart these engines. And there is a procedure in the books, which is a fairly lengthy one. Yes. Obviously, time was not in favour of you. So you had to bypass a number of these procedures to get the engines. Well, yes. I mean, young Barry did the full procedure a few times and then he proceeded to do uh, what he thought would be enough to get the engines going and we did this procedure i would imagine we have no idea we can't remember probably a hundred or so times we tried in our descent to get these engines going but it was incessant it was persistent endeavor and quite honestly those other two were yorkshire people and they have a reputation for being bloody minded but i tell you what they're not as bloody minded as somebody from the south of hampshire there were three of us there that weren't wouldn't give up my old granny used to tell me There's no such word in the English language as can't, my boy. You bloody well get on and do it. And that's the way I am. Talk to me about the prospect, and of course this is hypothetical now, the prospect of landing or bringing down an aircraft the size of a 747 on the Indian Ocean at night in darkness and not aware of how close or far away the sea was from you. Well, let's be honest, you're dead. That's the... uh the, the true analysis. What we didn't know was we couldn't see out the aeroplane. We had no lights that would work outside. Uh, they'd all been sandblasted. We were dead. We, oh, let's be honest, we were dead. So as far as you were concerned, if you did have to do that, there would be no survivors. Well, I'd have had a bloody good go at it, but I don't think it's possible. I mean, if you're doing, say, 120 miles an hour, 115 miles an hour, whatever you, would, you could get it down to slow as to do, and you hit water, depending how you do it, and it's, even if you could manage to skim the water, eventually you would hit it and you would stop. And you would stop suddenly. And when you stop suddenly from that sort of speed, you're pulling probably 12, 13 G. And I'm afraid at that sort of G-force, your bones turn to, well, mush, really. I've also read where the passengers, some of the passengers began to write letters to their loved ones in the whole... Well, there's one in one one of the books that was written. Yeah, by one one of the passengers. Yeah. I know, obviously, all three of you in the cabin were extremely busy trying to get these engines started. Did you at any time go down the road of thinking of your wife and family or was it just you were too busy at the time? Well, you're too busy for much, much, most of the time. Right, just before one engine started, I had uh, thought, well, Christ, this is going to be difficult. And uh, I probably, yeah, 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 I, I suppose I did briefly go down there, but not for long. After what must have seemed like an eternity, and after approximately 120 failed attempts to restart the engines, their look now changed when the engines eventually came to life. But their problems weren't over yet. During the St. Elmo's fire exhibition, the windscreen of the plane had been sandblasted with some type of material that the wipers could not remove. So, how were they supposed to land when they could not identify the airport or the runway? However, there was this tiny piece of windscreen that it was possible to peer through, and by leaning in the correct angle, Eric Moody was just about able to see the runway. Absolutely. We could see absolutely nothing. So, and there was this tiny, tiny little sliver of windscreen that wasn't... That hadn't been blasted, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and you had to peer out through that to to land, and you landed safely. 
It was at this point that all three flight crew were now working together again, and Captain Eric Moody's decision to sacrifice height in order for Roger Greaves to recover without a mask was a very correct decision. They would not have landed safely without the input of all three, captain, first officer and flight engineer. I mean, right at the end, I mean, it wasn't just so simple. I think the best bit of crew cooperation on that flight was the approach and landing. When we realised we couldn't see out the windows at all, I had to sit over at the edge and, you know, just see down the edge of the screen. And uh, Rog was able to call out the distance, out the height. Barry was able to monitor the engine powers. And we called out, we went down uh, 300 feet a mile on the approach, which is the three degree glide slope. And uh, at 100 feet, of the end of the runway, I slid back into my seat and the aeroplane did the rest itself. It was beautiful. This might seem like a, a silly question, but what was the feeling like in the flight deck when you landed, landed safely and the plane came to a halt? Well, we wanted to know what had happened. All three of us did. And we were convinced, well, because in aviation, I'm afraid, a bit like the French law, you're guilty, now prove yourself innocent. And it was quite relieving. And in fact, it was quite fun that they kept finding things that made us look better and better and that we couldn't have done much better. And it was um, it was shutting up all the knowles and clever buggers that were telling us that, uh, you know, we must have done this, you must have done that. In the end, we were shown that what we'd done was what anybody in their right mind would have done had they had the opportunity. And of course, the reason for all of this was volcanic ash. Yeah, volcanic ash got us and it was the world's first ever recorded engine excursion into volcanic ash that had uh, got away with it, that had caused all those problems and got away with it. And now it's written up almost verbatim to what we did in every ops manual on every commercial aircraft in the world. What steps have been taken since to avoid a repetition of this? Are there sensors at different parts of the globe to detect volcanic ash? Oh, a massive, <laughs> massive, massive industry has grown out of it. They have, in fact, now volcanic activity advisory centers all over the world. And they've got places monitoring certain areas. There's somewhere down in um, in Nigeria, I think, that monitors this part of the world, and uh, particularly Iceland. And of course, there's some in uh, Italy. Uh, and then there's some Alice to uh, monitor in Australia and Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia. There's never ever a day when a volcano doesn't erupt on the uh, on the island of Java. Coming up in part three, it would be two weeks or so before the cause of the incident was officially established. In the meantime, pilot error would always be the first avenue to go down in the unlikely event of all four engines failing. The story of British Airways Flight 009 continues and concludes in part three after the break, right here on C-103. C-103.